Tim Parks is a British novelist who's lived in Italy for the last 28 years. His book Europa was shortlisted for the Booker, and his latest novel is entitled Cleaver. Cleaver is about a media celebrity show host who's just performed his best interview, I think. He, he thinks it's one of his most memorable. With the President of the United States, so he's on a high, and his son has just come out with a, a novel that serves as a cleaver, publicizes the life of the publicizer. This event cleaves Mr. Harold Cleaver's life in two. He decides to abandon everything and go to Italy. You're playing very hard with the name there, you know. I didn't have any of this in mind in the first paragraph. I just called him Harold Cleaver. His son's written a book called Under His Shadow. We don't know really if it's a novel or a family biography, but it's certainly trouble for Cleaver. It's like a phrase book. You don't know if it's a memoir or a <laughs> work of uh, fiction. It's interesting when you have kids of your own imagining them taking your life apart. And I guess my first novel many, many years ago, the first novel that was published called Tongues of Flame, was in fact a novelized biography of our family who were very involved in the charismatic movement and exorcisms and so on. So I had to go through a certain amount of trouble with my mother after that was published. My father was already dead. I'm seeing it from a different point of view, I guess, at this point. But none of that was really in my mind when I set off on the book. It's just occurred to me a little later as I went along with it. What you've done to others, your character is doing to you. Cleaver is somebody who's like a master of the public space. He's like almost invented the British news voice. And at the same time feels utterly trapped by these meaningless cadences and this constant false drama of the media. He's clearly in a very difficult family situation with a wife who isn't a wife in the sense that, that they don't make love and they're both having affairs. And he's clearly deeply traumatized by the death of his daughter many years ago. And there's hardly been any touch at all with his son. And his son, instead of taking him on in the private space of the family, takes him on in Cleaver's space, the public space. Or at least Cleaver sees it like that. Perhaps the son doesn't see it like that at all. So Cleaver just suddenly feels that his interview with the President of the United States, which was devastating, will actually have no effect at all on the President of the United States because that's the nature of the media, you know. The President of the United States is sufficiently strong to ride that. You just said it's devastating. Does, does Cleaver think that it's devastating to the President? He eventually begins to realize that actually it's devastating to himself to have done such a destructive interview and to realize that it makes no difference at all. So in other words, he spends the time in the interview trying to make himself look good, like the victor and the other? Not at all. He, he comes to the interview in a, in a fairly violent state because he's just read his son's book about himself. Imagine a very strong interviewer facing the present president of the United States. I don't think there would be too much difficulty in making fun of the man. And that's probably why he doesn't face any very strong interviewers. The important thing here is the sense of, of the complete meaninglessness of, of this position. And also just the sense that the sun has, in fact, kind of open the can of worms most violently. In particular, as the book continues, we realize the thing that really gets at Cleaver is that the son has, in his novelized version of their life, made it seem that the father is somehow responsible for the daughter's death. In any event, 
the opening gesture of the book is Cleaver's decision to depart, to go and live far away from the place where he had mastery, in a part of Europe, the South Tyrol in the Alps, where they speak a German, which is such a dialect that not even German speakers can understand it, and to live in total isolation that this might be possible. So that the book is really an exploration of what it means to try and detach the mind from that kind of collective back and forth that we most of us live in in one way or another. Yeah, he says, uh, I must shut my big mouth. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think most exhibitionists live in a sort of tension between their exhibitionism and a certain sense of being appalled at their exhibitionism. He's a man who oscillates between positions fairly, fairly wildly. The culture, such as it is, such as it may turn out to be, Cleaver told himself firmly of the South Tyrol, need, need not, not be analysed, ironised, criticised or eulogised. A recorded voice warned that the doors were about to close. The business of living in a remote mountain cabin need not be dramatized or serialized, nor written up into a sort of Walden. Now, with the advent of all of these blogs, it seems that confession is the uh, mode of the day. Everyone, and, and all of these reality programs and talk show programs... I think confession has been the mode since Rousseau, you know. I mean, isn't the whole of Western individualism about... Public confession is probably tied with the, the advent of... More so tied with the advent, because it's much easier to... Oh, it's just become easier, but the desire... Yeah, but the I mean, desire's there, but now the, now the means are. But I think what's important is the desire. The means obviously may just proliferate everything. But, you know, you only need to read the kind of thing that Rousseau re writes in Les Confessions about his masturbation and so on and so forth. That and abandoning his children. Yeah, <laughs> which he doesn't even seem to feel is one of the major confessions. One of the, the whole ideas of, of the Western vision of the individual being in his relationship with the absolute on his own rather than in the community is that he wishes to confess to a very large degree everything that goes on in his head. At the same time, obviously, the, the simple nature of life means that it's extremely unwise if you wish to have any kind of relationship that continues to do this. I think there's a constant tension between confession and living a double life. I think well, I writers think live that very much. I because was going to say, the, the mere fact that the sun has laid the private life open and the trouble that many writers get into, as you've just said, this is Cleaver... In Tyrol, nor can there be any question of recommending anything to anyone or of reporting home on any wisdom supposedly acquired. This whole desire and urge to share experience and to and to turn everything into into documentaries and money. You know, like everybody who has any kind of experience has to it has to be a book. We're, we're talking about the gesture of a man who's immensely powerful. I mean, he's also a, a famous documentary filmmaker. He's not, he's kind of a dumb talk show host or anything. And you sense that his decision to bail out goes way beyond the immediate problem of his son's book or this interview to just a very deep feeling that the only real challenge left to him 
is the possibility of being alone with himself. The, how difficult that has become in the modern world, you know, with the, with the emails and the and the mobile and the messages. Like, it's all voluntary, though. It's all voluntary, but like being a kid in a sweet shop, mm. it does take a little time to learn not Wait. to reach out. The book is very largely about forcing himself into a position of silence. Mm. Yeah, he had trouble with the, the, the clicker. He, he couldn't stop uh, turning the television. I think we all know that if you check into a hotel and you've got nothing to do, even though you think TV's awful, you, you'll probably turn it on at some point. Mm, for company or whatever. Well, no, you, you just do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> even just to slag it off. So the book's largely about that. But if you go back, I want to try and get a sense of, of the meaning this might have in my life. You know, I grew up in this, like, super charismatic evangelical family where... By the time I was in my late teens, all I wanted to do was to get out, not so much my family, but that environment, that rhetoric, you know? False rhetoric. Or they believed it, but... Oh, they believed it 100%, but it's just an asphyxiating and coercive rhetoric that I wanted to be out of. And then later, there's another big moment in my life, when it's in my early 20s in London, and I'd been writing a lot and couldn't get published. And I felt immensely like the pressure of the whole London scene, the, the the kind of talk you get in the newspapers, the talk on the television, like this, this constant and slightly complacent feeling of everything being established, this is the way of talking about this. So again, there was this other moment in my life where I decided to leave the UK, like partly because I'd met an Italian woman and we'd got married, and decided to go to Italy, where at that time, not understanding a word of Italian, there was a wonderful period of a couple of years you couldn't get English radio in Italy. The phone cost a lot. There was no email. There was no mobile. There was no fax. You really were quite isolated. Wine and, and, and a woman. Yeah, I mean, there were other things. You know, we did eat as well. You know, to work quite a lot as well. You know, and of course there was there was all the difficulty of learning Italian and learning to speak it. And so, but what I mean is, there was that very strong experience of removing oneself from a certain buzz. And then the experience of gradually becoming immersed in the Italian buzz, because obviously after 26 years, you know, and I teach at the university and I'm right for Corriere della Sera, so I'm very much in Italian life now. And then one moves back and forth between them, and you sense how much each language is a kind of enchantment and a kind of trap, and each one's separate from the other. It's only when you move between them that you become terribly aware of a new you know, way of talking, thinking about everything and so on. I think that's one of the real benefits of being bilingual and that's, uh, you know, that's why so many... Bilingual societies obviously force you to be aware that there are two separate, completely separate visions of what's going on. Yeah, and different that, ways of coming at yeah, the same issue. Yeah. And, and as soon as you know that there are two, you know that there are probably two million, so, you know... Uh, that's a useful thing as far as one's work is concerned. So this gesture of cleavers of, of like the complete removal of himself from from the world is I think something that in my own writing go, goes far back and it, and here is stated in its most extreme form. He imagines himself getting above the noise line as he calls it because he sees and he's going to find a remote place to live above the noise line but, but of course the real noise is in Cleaver's head, and, and the book is very largely about his dealings with that. He goes to the South Tyrol because it's a very anonymous place, it's not a place that's frequented by British tourists, really, and he hopes to be anonymous there. 
And he also goes there because he doesn't speak German. He did A-level German, but he doesn't speak German. And, and, and of course, the irony is that as soon as he's meeting people there, he's trying to talk to them because in the end, that's what he does. So there's a certain comedy in Cleaver's dealings with the local people of the South Tyrol, which is an area I know quite well because it's very close to where I live. And he says uh, to himself, you must just be here and nothing else. Well, because he has this kind of habit of imagining himself in some sort of documentary movie presenting the world to everybody. I do have a little experience of being involved with documentaries, and I'm kind of appalled by how falsely they're set up. And yet it's interesting when the British are heralded around the world for their, their objective. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. I noticed that Cleaver is... Uh, there's, a, there's a line about his, his ambition, avarice, and appetite were incarnate. His son puts it in the opening lines of his, of his novel. My father was as utterly incapable of leaving any woman alone as he was utterly, absolutely, and irremediably incapable of turning down any offer of food or drink or cigarettes or even more chronically any opportunity to appear in public at any moment of the day or night. Well, that's his son's version of events. <laughs> so that's not you then well absolutely I wouldn't write about myself how dull that would be <laughs> right yeah. how dull that would be yeah. it's a craving fame and fortune and overindulgence is such a theme particularly in the United States but let's go back oh. again to confessions precisely the nature of the confession is the hope that I will become famous by confessing something terribly interesting right I think the confessor wants to occupy a public space with his confession. Otherwise, he would confess it to his friend in a bar. That's right, he wouldn't write it down. Right. You know, we could spend hours looking at the roots of individualism in, in the late medieval period and Christianity and so on. Well, there's a great line in Emil Suram where he says, Ever since people stopped believing in immortality, everybody writes. Okay, so there's this feeling that, you know, if we have no metaphysic, if we're, if we're not going to heaven, at least we can be briefly famous. Well, that's Shakespearean sonnets, of course, and he mentions that in, in one beautiful one. But So, yeah, that's a path to immortality, is to write something that stands the test of time and to have kids. Yeah, I think there's a much greater solemnity in Shakespeare than what we're talking about here, though. What we're talking about here is kind of avid seeking of glory. And at the same time, Cleaver's unintelligent enough to, to feel that that is actually ugly and that he would wish to be... Or empty, perhaps. Yeah, he would wish to withdraw from that if, he, if only he could, and he's removing himself. I think we should say something here about the style of the book, which is, I hope, a little bit unusual. It's a book that shifts constantly from between present and past tenses, uh, even in the same sentence, and where constantly the son's book intrudes into Cleaver's mental space, with Cleaver apparently quoting from the son's book at length, to the extent that you begin seriously to disbelieve the possibility of Cleaver's having remembered so precisely what he's read in the son's book. It's, it's haunting him. It's almost And you get a feeling that the son's book may indeed be a caricature of Cleaver, but at the same time it may be Cleaver him, himself rather paranoically imagining 
that the sunspot was worse than it is. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of reading something about yourself. It can get extremely difficult to read it with a relaxed and serene mind, you know? It's like you tend to skip and what on earth is... How could he possibly say this about me and so on and so forth? The book is a sort of collision of these factors and also the just the ordinary people of the Tyrol kind of coming into it and, and all the awful practical things of, you know, how to get to sleep in a cold bedroom and was it wise to have a cold beer <laughs> so late in the evening and so on. And how am I going to lose this weight? Because Cleaver is seriously overweight. Falstaff comes to mind and Gargantua. He's, he's clearly a Falstaffian figure, yeah. He's a, and I think anybody who works in the media, but even people who haven't worked in the media, must be familiar with this kind of figure of the, the very witty, rather overweight, heavy-drinking, hard-living, not-unpleasant man, you know, an extremely charming fellow. Certainly interesting company. Yeah, which is what one wants in the end, you know. Spending time with nice people who have nothing to say to you is not very interesting. <laughs> Well, it's true. It's like if, you, if there's no disagreement, then what is there? There's, there's, there's not much, not much to talk about after a while. Yeah, I think with Cleaver also, there's certainly an element, probably, of seduction in almost every relationship he he's engaged in. Yeah, you put it nicely. There's uh, here it is right here. It's because it must be understood again, coming from the son, that my father couldn't speak to someone, to anyone, without trying to seduce them if they were a woman, or to coach them if they were a man. The intention being, my father explained, to instill in the viewer both intense anxiety and extreme complacency simultaneously. Cleaver's talking, been talking there about how, just about the whole way the media is packaged, and this whole aspect of the media that isn't, that pretends to be information but actually isn't, that it, that is a form of liturgy, like... You know, our constant need to know whether the Hang Seng has moved half a percent up or down. You know, it's like, yeah. why do we even fucking well know what the Hang Seng is? You know, like for me, who, who make no investment. And, you know, what has this got to do with my life? And, and, yet, what's, yeah, what's important? and yet, like at 7.30 in the morning, I'm being told that the Hang Seng has moved here or there, you know, and uh, Dow Jones and whatever. Yeah. And, 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 and who you, says that's important? Well, right. Well, you can imagine that if, it had, if the Dow Jones had moved 10%, you might want to say... Uh, Oh, times are changing, but you know the fact that it's moved point three on it. You know, it, so Cleaver's very is an intelligent guy. He's very aware that that actually what's happening here is that you're introducing a kind of rhythm into people's lives, a kind of collectivity, which is ent entrapping. The son's taken taken this on board, uh, and and Cleaver talks about the way the way the news is presented, these kind of collages of images and so on the way they create a sense of drama, but at the same time they're reassuring because because they're coming at you at the same time every day, you know, and it's all like, dun, 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 you know, uh, 79 people dead in Baghdad, you know, horror, blood, this and that, but it's always going to be at 6 o'clock and it's always going to last this long, so... And it's going to be replaced by the next uh, yeah. disaster, but... Cleaver's terribly intelligent about all that and yet was, was largely <laughs> responsible mm -hmm. for its development and is bailing out of it. Yeah, Neil Postman comes to mind. I don't know if you've read it. No, I haven't. No. It's, it's very, very good on, on this very topic. Well, I'm sure loads, you know, loads of us are thinking constantly about is there any way, is there any hope that the world could live without this sort of thing? 
I suspect not, you know, I suspect. But, you know, we talk about Walden, the, you know, he doesn't want to Waldenize his, uh, to the quiet country, but if we do have the choice of turning it off, and uh, I mean, the more and more people should and, and are, I believe, doing that. Because no, no, we have the choice. No, what I, what I meant there was whether there is any chance that publicly the world could live without this. We, well, we can all individually decide to turn off the TV. Mm. I mean, you know... Well, there's all sorts of com competition now to the, to the television with the way the internet... Yeah, unfortunately, the, the TV... ...and all that sort of thing yeah. is diminishing. The source, sources of uh, information are diverse now to a point where almost anyone can become their own radio station. Absolutely. Well, you know, weblogs and everything else in one way or another. Actually, I'm, I'm all for that. Mm -hmm. I'm all for the disintegration of this centralized voice. You, you mentioned completely fake confrontation, as Cleaver talks about the media and the you know the interviews that take place. Uh -huh. and the fact that it's it's completely fake, and yet the viewer is always complicit. Yeah, let's talk about that for one minute because it it seems to me that a lot of people don't really take on board that when I say fake. You know, you know those BBC World kind of interviews where you get some really... They actually have a program called, I don't know, In the Hot Seat or In the Something Chair. And they'll have some interviewer trying to slay some, some guy. And they slog back and forth, right? And really, secretly, they may hate each other, but secretly they're allies in the show. In they the want it to be interesting. A really astonishing move would be if the interviewer said, well, you may have a point there or something like that. Almost like an opposition member saying, well, the, the, the government actually did a good job there. Yeah. Identity is often created just by a series of oppositions. I mean, talking about that, you know, I've written a lot about football and I remember seeing on the on on one of the chat lines where Verona fans were arguing with Vicenza fans, you know, two, two cities close to each other which hate each other. Sounds like Romeo and Juliet. Well, but I'm sure that here in here in Canada there'll be two cities who are always at loggerheads over wow, some game. Montreal. Right, okay. One guy comes out on the net and he says, Guys, remember, you only exist insofar as we hate you. Right. Which is not stupid, because what he's saying is, you can only really be a big Vicenza fan if there's Verona to hate. You know, what would you do without us? So let's go back to that thing. You've got these interviews which you know pretend to be so revealing and everything but actually are just again entirely predictable in in their antagonisms and the viewer is complicit to the to the extent in which if he continues to watch if he is aware that the stuff's stupid but still continues to watch it then then he's a supporter of of the whole thing yeah, and i think you i think you really do have to to have any kind of coherence inside your own mental life at all, you have to just decide. No, this this stuff, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to. Well, and the TV p uh, programmers are not going to make this stuff if there's not an audience for it. So. Well, it would be wonderful if a few more people turned off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tim Parks, getting back to Cleaver, our, our friend Cleaver. Just uh, in closing, within the first chapter of, of your book, quite frequent mention of uh, these porcelain dolls. And Cleaver finally uh, talks about wanting to, oh, to be as thoughtless as a doll, as careless of heat and cold. Yeah. What, what's funny about it is that, that they're also young women, and Cleaver has a very long track record in, in young women. And yet at the same time, they're utter, utterly cold and still. 
So there's um, Maybe they've been They're utterly cold and still No the dolls The dolls are utterly cold and still I think what's happening with Cleaver Is later in the book He comes across an accordion Which is locked away in a cupboard In the, the place where he eventually Ends up living way way up At, at like 6,000 feet And he pulls out the accordion And starts to play it You know Because he did play a little piano trouble is he doesn't remember much of what he played so what he finds himself playing is should old acquaintance be forgot which of course is the last thing that somebody walking out in the world should be singing and rock of ages cleft for me and what was happening apart from his, his sense of the immense irritation that when he starts playing music he actually just locks himself back into the past I don't know if you know rock of ages cleft for me you don't know that song? If you sang it to me, I would. Oh, I'm not, not going to sing it. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, you know. When I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, rock of ages cleft for me. There's this idea of, like, heaven opening to you. And, of course, he's right up there in the mountains with the rocks everywhere. And there is a slow realization, which goes back to what you said about the dolls, that that beneath a lot of his behavior there's a there's a death wish that he has kind of fantasies of himself being as it were absorbed into the landscape western society is permeated by a very deep death wish which tells us that real living begins after we're dead as it were mm. and although that's human good health keeps that largely buried there are many hymns whose sad cadences I mean, if you even even a hymn like Jerusalem, you know, I will not cease from mental strife, you know, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand. And you know that building Jerusalem here is actually beyond. And Rock- so many of the terrorists are driven by exactly that. Yeah, although there's a kind of pathos about it. it it's not an aggressive, it's not a blowing oneself to pieces thing. But um, I think a lot of hymns have a... Uh, abide with me, fast falls the eventide. You know, there's this this looking forward to the moment of twilight and death, and trying to make it feel comfortable with metaphysics, which is so sad because it diminishes the present. Well, it does. I think Cleaver becomes aware that in tension with his his appetite and his seeking of celebrity, there is also this other side to him, which kind of seeks to bury himself in the wilderness in a way. And he's dealing with that tension. His appetite, see, the women and food. Women, food, glory of celebrity. And I think he perhaps comes to the realisation that this is vacuous and empty. Well, he always knew that it was vacuous and empty, but funnily enough, knowing that it's vacuous and empty doesn't... I mean, the great mystery of life, as he sees it, is that the awareness that celebrity is vacuous doesn't stop you from seeking it. No, it's almost like you're addicted to it. Well, I'm sure loads of talk show hosts are perfectly aware that that it's vacuous, but you do it anyway because because what else can you do? You, you make money from it. I mean, listen, listen, listen. Well, here we're, like, we're, we're getting to issues which are kind of profound to the way we all operate. It's, it seems to me that, that in the West, a very large number of people have dumped any profound belief that would attach any absolute meaning to life in the sense of the way a Christian metaphysic, a Christian creed would attach meaning to life. When you've dumped that, you can you can move to the absurdist position, which you know has already been stated in the 17th and 18th century by I mean somebody like Leo, the Italian poet Leopardi refers to the world as a solid nothing, you know, 
And, and well before Beckett. Oh, yeah. I mean, of, of course, and Beckett was a great Leopardi fan. Like, as Leopardi saw it, the world is actually meaningless, and all we can do is try to create collective illusions which will give it meaning and, and health. Like religion, that's what Pascal talked about. Yeah, though Leopardi felt that it would be impossible to actually generate a religion because at the same time you'd be perfectly aware that it, it was meaningless. And in fact, we do live in a kind of schizophrenia between creating meaning collectively and yet being aware that that actually there is no meaning absolutely behind what we're doing. And sport, one of the reasons I've written a lot about sport is it seems to me a kind of parody version of what we do. Like we create meaning around a game we talk about our absolute faith in the team. It's you not know. for the masses. Right. Yeah, but, it's, but the masses are not stupid. It's done ironically. Everybody knows that, that they don't really believe in the team. At the deepest possible level, they know that, that there are other important things in life. Mm. So that Cleaver's really trying to deal with that question there is, why did I spend so much energy building up a reputation, even after I'd long ceased to believe? That there was any meaning in what in what I was doing. The book is so more coming to a, a midlife crisis dinner. No, let's please leave that notion out. If Cleaver had a midlife crisis, it was years before. It seems you know a midlife crisis for people a little bit less sophisticated than Cleaver. You know we, there are crises at every moment of life, depending on where you're up to and who leaves you and you know who betrays you. And so I really hate that expression. But there's a lot more in this book because what's happening is that Cleaver also has is becomes dependent on people around him who, who he has to get food from and the people who rent him the house he lives in and this family of people to whom he can't talk, where he realizes that there's some kind of drama is going on in their lives which he can't really understand because he can't communicate with them. So he begins to enter a different world because in the there is really no way out without it being the last way out, as it were. And he very slowly starts to, at first, rather perversely recreate his own family relationships with these people. But then slowly to try and just create relationships which are genuinely, simply relationships with these people. A, a true connection that, that provides meaning. Yeah, not a profound connection, but just a simple, modest vivendi with these other people. I mean, not, not that the book leads to a resolution which would suggest that I've solved the problem. If you were looking for the life, of, the meaning of the life world and everything, you know, I, I think The Hitchhiker's Guide has already solved that beyond any reasonable With doubt. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what the number was. Yeah, I believe if you check on Google, if you, if you type in the meaning of the life, the world and everything, it actually gives you 62 or whatever it is. So what is the meaning then? I've reached a point in my life where I know what I love to do and it's exactly this. So what we've just done gives meaning to my life. What we have just done, exchanging ideas, thoughts about something that you've created from your imagination and connected that way. To that yeah, well, I mean, what we have to do here is just, just look at the word meaning and because yeah. as soon as we invent, as soon as human beings invent the word meaning... What it means is they've understood that life might be meaningless because what you've done is you've divided the world into those things that create a sense of security, for mental security for you by having sense and all the rest that is nonsense, right? So, I mean, the moment we invent the word meaning, we're clearly in big trouble, right? You've said that it's an, a conversation like this creates meaning. A conversation like this is fun and it passes the time well and it approaches our anxieties 
and maybe allows us to deal with with some not being alone you mean no but let's take the question of what a good novel is doing it's trying to create a space where we can talk about things that are difficult for us if it's a good novel i mean if it's just a feel-good novel then and frankly i don't want to read it but Look, the, the easiest way to talk about this is to go back, well, right back to the, the Iliad. You remember that wonderful moment when Helen's come back from Troy? Like, you know, she's been fucking around for ten years, and now she's back home with Menelaus. After tens of thousands. Yeah, of always, yeah, yeah. Every, all for a woman. Right, all, all hell has been let loose. And Odysseus' son comes along, Telemachus, and he thinks that his father is dead, and so he's not in good spirits. And they're all sitting together, and... They want to talk, but the really the only thing they really need to talk about is just so painful to all three of them because Menelaus feels that he's been a fool. Helen feels that she behaved badly, yeah. and Telemachus has to face his father's death. Right, so they they can't talk about it. And Homer says that Helen goes into the back room and gets a drug that had been given to her in Egypt. The properties of which are that if put in the wine, and wine is certainly an important element, they would allow you to talk about your brother's death with a smile on your face, right? So they unknowingly drink the drug, the other two, and they spend the whole evening chatting about what really matters to them, but which is really, in a sense, too difficult to talk about. And they have a good evening, and the next day they wake up and it's okay. And I think like what most novelists are trying to do, or any good artist, whether visual or otherwise, is, is to find some kind of enchantment or drug which will allow you to bring into the frame the things that are difficult to talk about and make them a pleasure as well. Make them a pleasure as well. So that when you read a book like Disgraced by Kurtzer, he's talking about the most awful things, quite frankly. And, it, and it's an immense pleasure to read because, because he's put it in a way and framed it in a way that it's not reassuring but it is a pleasure to go through that uneasiness with him that helps us to face the most frightening things that human beings face I'm not sure even about facing them because it's only for the space of the book like once the book's closed it's not going to help you deal with rape or deal with do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. but for the space of the book it has been possible mentally to open up to that mm -hmm. um, and to and to think about it and because books can be shared, you know, for mm -hmm. us two to meet who don't know each other and and sense in, in that appreciation of, of what Kotze did in that book, a certain sense of community. Mm -hmm. So novels help us to connect. Tim Parks, thank you very much for this connection. Well, Tim thank Parks. you. The novel is Cleaver. It's published by Secker and... Marvel Secker in England, not sure who publishes it here in Canada. Best of luck with the book. Thanks.